Welcome to the Senior Story Hour, where we share poems, stories, observations of life, written by the Franklin Senior Center Writers Group. So here we are once again, all in our respective socially distant responsible places with bright, shiny faces. Did I say that right? <laughs> it rhymes. And uh, that said, uh, with us now, and perhaps others will join, we have... Kathy Salzberg. Hi, Steve Sherlock here. Hi, I'm Alice Judge. Hi, I'm Bill Wiley. Hi, I'm Joe Ewald. Hi, I'm Al Larkin. Hi, I'm Faith Clarity. So, um, I think yeah. what we shall do is jump right in, as usual, Faith. <laughs> my two cents. I have two coins in my hand that add up to 15 cents. One of them is not a nickel. What are the two coins? I'm stumped. Uh, yes. Listen to the wording of the question. One of them is not a nickel. Ah. I, didn't, I didn't say the other one couldn't be, did I? Oh. But uh, boom. <laughs> so the answer is simple. My two coins are a nickel and a dime. Oh. Do you know how often two coins are mentioned in literature, music, traditions, and folklore? Your guess is as good as mine, but I found too many references when I tried to find the origin of two bits for a shave and a haircut. Okay. Uh, <laughs> remember that? In 1939, the musical phrase was used as a six-note tune called Shave and a Haircut. By Dan Shapiro, Lester Lee, and Milton Berle. In the mid-1990s, the upbeat music group called Dispatch sang a song titled Two Coins. I stick loneliness, your lips, and the two coins of your eyes into my pockets yeah so the lyrics say i reached into my pocket for some small change i reached into my pocket for some small change yeah hey let's drink from the cup and share some luck go ahead and laugh because it don't cost much no no it don't don't cost much i stick loneliness your lips and the two coins of your eyes into my pockets yeah the reference is probably due to the ancient custom of putting a coin on the eyes of the deceased so that they wouldn't pop open. The Greeks also put a coin in the mouth to pay Charon, the ferryman who ferried the person across the river, separating the living from the dead. Actually, this custom is found before the Greeks in areas around the world. Speaking of the dead, have you ever seen coins left on graves? gravestones on the top of mm -hmm. them? Yep. Yes. Leaving a penny on a grave simply means that you visited that. Oh, okay. Military graves have a code. Leaving a penny on the grave means that you were in the same service branch. A nickel indicates that you and the deceased trained at boot camp together. A dime means you served with him in some capacity. A quarter at the grave you are telling the family that you were with that soldier when he was killed. Ooh. The Bible has many references to two coins. The Good Samaritan leaves two coins at the end to take care of the wounded man. That's in Luke 10, 30 to 35. 
And in Luke 21, 1-4, they mention a rich man putting gifts in the treasury. And then there was a poor widow who only put in two mites. But Jesus said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than anyone. For the rich gave out of his abundance, but the widow put in all she had to live on. Mm -hmm. Well, that's my two cents. And I will close with a poem from Richard Newman, Coins. My change, a nickel caked with finger grime. Two nicked quarters, not long for this life. Worth more for keeping dead eyes shut than bus fare. A dime shining in sunshine like a new dime. Grubby pennies, once stamped the year of my birth, no brighter than I from 40 years of wear. What curses, piggy banks, and windowsills have these coins known? Their presidential heads put into what beggars chalky palm. They circulate like tarnished red blood cells, all of us exchanging the merest film of our lives and the lives of those long dead. And now my turn in the convenience store. I hand over my fist of change, still warm, to the bored, lip-pierced checkout girl, once more to be spun down cigarette machines, hurled in fountains, flipped for luck, these dirty charms chiming in the dark pockets of the world. Very good. Yeah, yes. All right. Okay. That one, that one, that one must have taken an awful lot of research. Well, I was walking in the cemetery. Uh-huh. <laughs> and saw these coins ah. and um, did some where'd, research. Where'd the coins come from? Yes. Yeah. Yes. What yeah. about the stones on the, on the um, gravestones? Because a lot of people put stones yeah. on my husband's. Yeah, that's a Jewish custom. And I, I looked okay. it up, but I forget what it meant. I think it just means that you visited. They were there. Yeah. Yeah, usually it's something that indicates that the person visiting thinks whoever is buried there is a righteous person. Yeah, that's what I think. Okay, Yeah, that's good. And you know what, I think it's interesting if you're Catholic, this may sound familiar. You know the coin in the mouth that they put in Sharon's, or however you pronounce his name? Right, Sharon. Yeah. Sharon. You know what that is called? The Vaticum. Vaticum. Yeah. Wow. A lot of fun. Big Joe. Okay. Hi, my name is Joe Ewald, and the name of my story is The History of the Boston Red Sox from the beginning until present time. Boston Red Sox were not always called the Red Sox. They were called the Red Stocking and the Red Legs originally when they started up in the late 1800s. And then, auspiciously, on April 15th, 1912 was the day that Fenway Park was presented and also the day that the Titanic sank. Oh, wow. It was a little tidbit that uh, people don't know. And then at the time, uh, they had Babe Ruth, who everybody knows, but he wasn't a hitter back then. He was a pitcher. And he pitched for the Red Sox for five years, and he won three world championships for the Red Sox. The last one was in 1918. And then a lot of people don't know this fact either, is that the owner of the Red Sox back then, Harry Frazee, sold Babe Ruth to the Yankees for $100,000 to finance a play on Broadway. Oh, boy. And then, then the beginning of the Bambino curse, 
started in 1918 because of that ridiculous trade that the owner of the Red Sox made. So we went 86 years without winning a World Series until we broke it. We broke the hex in 2004. Yep. So and then they, the curse. What the curse lasted? They lost four World Series in a row, and every World Series they took it to the seventh and final game. And because of bad luck or a curse, they lost in 46. They missed a relay throw and let the St. Louis Cardinals, who were called the Gas House Gang because of their ability to run, scored the winning run that made the Red Sox lose the seventh game in the 1940s, 1946. And at the time, we had a great player called Ted Williams, which I think everybody knows. And um, he also served in the service as a... um, fighter pilot, which I don't think a lot of people know. So he lost four years to World War II, and he was a great player, but he never won a World Series. Then in 1967, who can forget that year when it was the impossible dream with Carl Ustremski, the man they call Yaz. They went from last place in 66 to first place and won the American League pennant in 1967, but they also lost to the Cardinals in seven games. Then we move up to 1975, and they won the American League pennant again, but they lost to the Cincinnati Reds again in seven games. And then who can forget the ball that went through Bill Buckner's legs in the 1986 World Series when they lost to the Mets? So... Because of those four losses, a lot of people believed in the Bambino curse. And, of course, I don't think curses exist because it was broken in 2004 if it was a curse in the first place when they also beat the Cardinals in four straight games. Then in 2007, they won the American League pennant again, won the World Series, and swept the Colorado Rockies. Then in 2013, the year of the um, marathon bombing, I remember David Ortiz made a famous speech about don't blank with our city. The Red Sox went on to win the World Series in 2013, the year of the marathon bombing. Then, of course, who can forget a couple of years ago when they beat the Los Angeles Dodgers in six games. And today, baseball was restored. They came to an agreement today, and I think they're going to spring training around the 1st, and then they're going to start up three weeks later, I think July 24th or July 31st. So I just wanted to make the story light and positive because of all the pandemic stuff. I know. Uh, it's, it's depressing. And so I try, I'm trying to lighten up the mood, uh, you know, for baseball, the boys of summer. And I just gave a brief history of the Red Sox and a couple of facts that I don't think a lot of people know about. So there you go. Very timely. <laughs> thank you. Nice following, Joey. There you yeah, go, Joey. Very good.
I think it'll be interesting to see what they do with a 60-game season, which will be good. I was wondering why the big delay in getting them to come together for a season, given all of the sports that are out there, you know, baseball should be one that's easy to do with social distancing money compared to football. Yeah, it comes down to money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. arguing with Doesn't it always? Yeah. Who do you think, Joe, we should hear from next? Okay, I would pick... um, I would pick Al to go next. Okay, Big Al, you're up. Okay, thank you, uh, Al Larkin. I need to uh, preface my story with uh, what it's about. Uh, it has to do with, uh, as a boy, returning to Prince Edward Island, Canada, 25 years later, from summers on my grandfather's farm as a boy. My wife and our six children vacationed at a tourist farmhouse uh, on the island. Providentially, uh, small schoolhouses were up for sale, and our bid on, on one, and our favorite, became ours. Now we are returning the following year to see what we have. The title of the story is uh, Making a Home Out of a Schoolhouse. We are now at a summer place on a three-week vacation finding out what we had and what we didn't have. It became clear this would be like camping, as was said. There was a lot to do, but we will make the most of it somehow. Some provisions and utensils we brought, along with our three-burner propane stove, which would help us to begin. Fresh water from the hand pump will be a great benefit and we can make good use of all those benches from the upstairs dance hall. A large, well-worn teacher's table can serve as our first counter and cooking area. Later that evening, after our long drive and tiresome day, darkness was approaching. It was time to exit the schoolhouse door and enter the outside door for upstairs into the dance hall. We set up benches for sleeping on top with the blown up beach mattresses that we brought along. In the morning of our first overnight, we came down and out the front door onto the landing in our jammies to enter the schoolhouse door. To our shock and surprise, outside there were crews of men paving the road. It was a little embarrassing as we scooted through the lower level door with men gawking and chuckling. <laughs> Our tools will be needed on the next trip, opening the wall between the entry hall and those stairs going up. Peggy and I still had some basic needs to be met, and we looked to ways to fulfill them. Now, how to go about it? We heard there was an auction to take place at the Widow McLeod home. It was decided we should attend. It became an experience, hearing the canter of the auctioneer, learning how and when to bid, what items you need, and how much you're willing to pay. This auction was bountiful for us. We bid on a fine oak dining room table with leaves, and I bid one at $35. 
separate bids for six plane chairs, one at $4 each, and a following bid on two fancy high-back chairs at $5 each. Beneficial and pure joy to begin with. With that success, we went on bidding for two complete beds of white-painted wrought iron frames and two small dresses with mirrors. A little, a little expense, a memorable day of perfect timing and grace. We have a great little store five miles down the road owned by the Cooper family. They are a great resource to the area, carrying everything you may need, and if not, they will get it for you. Notices can be found just inside the door, where we read a posting from a man near, nearby who had household items to be sold. At low prices, we bought another complete bed and dresser. Then the most vital of our needs was buying his very dated fridge. This was another day full of reward and satisfaction. Getting our new stuff to the schoolhouse didn't present a problem. As friends and relatives had pickups and willing hands. You might wonder why there were such bargains, but it's 1972 in farm country on Prince Edward Island. We are 30 miles from Charlottetown, the island's capital, and 15 miles to a smaller town where we chose to shop. Their little food stores are far from what we have today. This town has two great bakeries where we found fine pastries, including wonderful pies and biscuits. For now, we have met our basic needs. There was more to do, but we weren't going to let that get in the way of having fun on our vacation. Most days, we would head out and turn down every road that led to the shore. We found beaches for swimming, walking or shelling, with an occasional cottage along the shore. Now it's about the cove. Because of the people, Orwell Cove is a very special place with many fine traditions. One such was called Meet Your Neighbor Day. In the summer, a family would take a turn hosting by placing a note in your mailbox or you were told of it. And could you bring food to share? along with some lawn chairs. It was a time to greet the Cole families and those returning to visit them or to meet new people like us. We were made to feel very welcome. On Wednesday of each week of the summer, the bookmobile stopped on our road in front of the school for a climb on to choose or return a book. The second week of our vacation, a school bus arrived in front of our place to take our children on weekdays for swimming lessons and crafts. Program is supervised by lovely young counselors who are wonderful with the children. The day was to be 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. with a barbecue lunch. Our children were invited and happily accepted to join in. Hallelujah. This presented some leisure time for Peggy and me, along with Donna, our youngest. With plenty to do, though, we were still busy in some of those hours at all we could think of that was needed to be done or accomplished. 
nearby of great benefit to our family's personal needs was a provincial park for campus with showers, a laundry room, and a well-equipped playground and beach, all open to us and the locals, free to use. What was accomplished in those few weeks gave us the confidence for the future that it was gonna be all right. This family will make it a home. Very nice. Very nice. It worked out well. God's grace. Mm, Prince Edward Island, a wonderful place to visit. Kathy. Okay. I got a couple of little ones related to the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) The first one is called Change Isn't Always Good. This pandemic has changed many things, including the way we look, our habits, and our lifestyles. It's no longer unusual to see a brunette with a silver stripe down the middle part of her hair. I recently heard a little girl ask her mother, Mommy, how come you have a white stripe in your hair like a skunk? (laughs) Embarrassed, the woman clamped her hand over the child's mouth. We all knew it was because her hairdresser was not yet back to work. It's becoming such a common look nowadays that I think it might be catching on. Even our dogs are getting shaggy. My neighbor's hairy mutt keeps bumping into things. Why isn't dog grooming considered an essential business? My granddaughter noticed I'm no no longer wearing nail polish. She sweetly asked, want me to paint them for you, Nana? Um, no, thanks, honey. I'll call the salon again tomorrow. And all this snacking and eating just for something to do while we're stuck in the house, sometimes washing it down with a glass of wine, is also taking its toll. My refrigerator looks like it's been ransacked, and the guy at the liquor store has my order waiting on the counter when I walk in. I recently had to borrow a pair of my middle-aged brother's jeans because I couldn't sit down anymore in my own skinny boyfriend pair. I couldn't button them or zip them for the life of me. If I keep this up, I just might need to join... I'll start again. If I keep this up, I just might need to join those protesters on the governor's front lawn. I'll be social distancing but you probably won't recognize me. I'll be wearing a mask. That was one. There you go. <laughs> and the Very next good. one is about... We, we, can, we, can, we can all relate. <laughs> <laughs> pets in the pandemic. Oops, there we go. Many of us are at home these days, sheltering in place to hide from the pandemic. How are our dogs and cats reacting? to our constant presence. My own experience and those of our customers indicates that their reactions are quite different. Most dogs are beside themselves with joy. They follow us like shadows. More walks, more pets, more snacks. Life is good. Let's face it, lying around the house waiting for us to come home can get pretty boring. They're probably asking themselves, Who the heck are they supposed to be protecting the house from? Squirrels? The meter reader guy? 
those noisy kids next door? If my cat's reaction is typical, she's not too thrilled. She likes to catnap all day in my big comfy bed. But when I bounce in in midday to join her, she narrows those luminescent green eyes and shoots me a cold stare. She grunts and jumps down, stalking from the bedroom and flicking her tail. Now that I'm home, I can't help but notice how often she heads into the bathroom to use her porta potty. Her output is quite impressive, and she tosses it around like a whirlwind, spreading it on the scatter rugs and the floor. She seems to enjoy watching me sweep it up, but what really bugs me is after I'm done, she jumps back in for another session. Then she struts to the kitchen to stare at her empty food dish, her expression telling me, hey, fill this up, woman. Chop, chop. Who died and made her the queen? Never mind. One of these days we'll be heading back to work and then things will be back to normal or what passes for normal around here. Yay. <laughs> Very good, Kathy. Thank you. A new normal, whatever that is. Really? <laughs> By the way, uh, Bill has joined us. Hey, Big Bill. Welcome to the turf. Nice to be here. I, I, I do have a poem. Go for it. Okay, here it is. Uh, you captured my heart. I sit at the table and have my morning coffee, but deep in my heart, it's you that I see. I see a new life with you by my side. You make me so happy, my arms open wide. I welcome you, my love. I'm just an old man. I would stand by your side and hold out my hands. With a soft, gentle touch, my hands on your cheek, my emotions rise up and make me feel weak. For you, I be strong and protect our sweet love. In these deep waters, my head is above. You've captured my heart, you've captured my soul. True fact is, it's you that I hold. A beauty you are, with grace and such style. Hold you tight in my arms, with a big smile. I send you my love with all of my heart and be close beside you and just never part. I know we'll be happy, together we'll be. My heart is open wide, my love you will see. A relationship with you is what it's about. Together we'll stand, there just is no doubt. How's that? Yay. 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 Okay. Good job, Thank Bill. You, Bill. Great, Bill. So, Steve. So Steve. So Steve. Sounds like. <laughs> Picking up a theme or two from uh, Quentin I Would Faith had mentioned, I've got sort of a book review plus. So that'll be the intro or background, etc. And as such, music has played a key part at many significant moments of my life. I recall driving as an early teen to my rifle drill team practice struggling with the decision to stay or leave the team to devote my time to making the high school basketball team. When the Rolling Stones came on the radio singing, you can't always get what you want, <laughs> but if you try sometimes, you get what you need. 
at that time, I did leave the drill team to play basketball. I recall another time in college, the cross-country team on a bus ride to a meet in Plymouth, New Hampshire. It had been pouring rain since we left Worcester. We were dreading running the course, which was not known to be good in the rain. As we came over a crest on the highway, the rain slowed, the clouds gave way, the sun appeared, and of course, on the radio, I can see clearly now the sun has gone. It's going to be a bright, bright, sunny day. The team did have a good race that day. When I heard there was a new book, This Is Your Brain on Music, The Science of Human Obsession by Daniel Levitin, I found the Amazon link and put it on my reading list right away. I read it over the course of several of my commutes via the train to Boston. Oddly, it held my attention such that I couldn't listen to music while I was reading the book. Some books do that for me. They may not require my full attention, but they certainly did attract it. And this was one of those. This was also one book that I ended up making marking up more than I had any other book that I had read in several years. I had, of course, been marking books up while I was in college. You did that as part of the routine. You read a book, you mark it up, et cetera. But then uh, after college, I kind of got out of the habit. And then rereading Tim Sanders' Love is the Killer App brought this technique back to the forefront. Daniel writes in the introduction, and I quote, by better understanding what music is and where it comes from, we may be able to better understand our motives, fears, desires, memories, and even communication in the broadest sense. Is music listening more along the lines of eating when you're hungry and thus satisfying an urge? Or is it more like seeing a beautiful sunset or getting a back rub, which triggers sensory pleasure systems in the brain? Why do people seem to get stuck in their musical tastes as they grow older and cease experimenting with new music? This is the story of how brains in music evolved, what music can teach us about the brain, what the brain can teach us about music, and what both can teach us about ourselves. Daniel goes on to answer those questions and many others during the course of telling his story, and a good story it is. The book does not read like a textbook, although there are chapters that I suspect could substitute or at least be referenced by some music appreciation classes. But these chapters read better than a standard dry class presentation. (laughs) Chapters discussing pitch, timbre, rhythm, loudness, harmony, why we tap our feet, how we tap our feet differently than we snap our fingers, how mastery takes at least 10,000 hours, how songs get stuck in our head playing again and again called brainworms. Mm -hmm. These topics are all woven together in a convincing story, and Daniel can tell a story. For example, he met with and worked with John R. Pierce, who had been noted for his position while vice president of research at Bell Labs in New Jersey, father of AT&T, Ma Bell. He quotes, I first met Pierce in 1990 when he was already 80 in giving lectures on psychoacoustics at the Center for Computer Research and Music and Acoustics at Stanford. 
Several years later, after I learned, earned my PhD and moved back to Stanford, we became friends and would go out to dinner every night and discuss research. He once asked me to explain rock and roll music to him, something he had never paid attention to and didn't understand. He knew about my previous career in the music business and asked if I could come over for dinner one night and play six songs that would capture all that was important to know about rock and roll. Six songs to capture rock and roll? I wasn't sure I could come up with six songs to capture the Beatles, let alone rock and roll. That night, before he called me to tell that he had heard of Elvis Presley, so I didn't need to cover that. But the songs he brought to dinner, and the six may bring back some memories. One was Long Tall Sally by Little Richard. Two was Roll Over Beethoven by the Beatles. All Along the Watchtower, Jimi Hendrix version. Wonderful Tonight, Eric Clapton. Mm. Little Red Corvette by Prince. Anarchy mm. in the UK by the Sex Pistols. Can you imagine the discussion at that dinner? That's interesting. What six songs would you have come up with? <laughs> anyway, why do you think about that? Daniel weaves these stories in with the research on the brain in such a way that, that it's immediately readable. So listening to Phil Collins and his primal beat while I read this, while I write this, excuse me, I have a greater appreciation and understanding of the workings within my brain that makes the music so attractive and compelling. Ah, yes. And I quote, why would music be needed to show fitness? Primates are highly social, living in groups, forming complex long-term relationships that involve social strategies. Homeoid courtship was probably a long-term affair. Music, particularly memorable music, would insinuate itself into the mind of the potential mate, leading her to think about her suitor even when he was out on a long hunt, and predisposing her towards him when he returned. The multiple reinforcing cues of a good song, rhythm, melody, contour, cause music to stick in our heads. That is the reason that many ancient myths, epics, and even the Old Testament were set to music in preparation for being passed down by oral tradition across the generations. As a tool for activation of specific thoughts, music is not as good as language. As a tool for arousing feelings and emotions, music is better than language. The combination of these two, as best ex exemplified in a love song, is the best courtship display of all, end quote. I now know why I have a fondness for Neil Diamond songs. They were present during my formative years. Now I have more reasons to continue to listen to music, to explore new music, and not just stick to the standards. I want to keep the neurons firing. If you have any interest in music, I think this should be a good book to put on your must-read list. Very good. Good job, Steve. Thank you. And well delivered. We try. <laughs> okay, Alice, you are up. What do you have in store for us this week? 
I wrote an essay a little while ago and I found it in my archives. And I think it pertains to uh, today as it did then. It's called Real Estate Agent I'm Not. I had toyed with the idea of being a real estate agent from time to time, but that thought quickly dissipated when I tried to rent a two bedroom condo just outside of Boston that our Aunt Young family had outgrown. You are charging premium rent, so I should get something for that, said the tall, good-looking professional in front of me. I explained that the rent was in line with the neighborhood. The 27-year-old, who explained he had his own computer company, told me he was interested in our place, but for $50 less. My husband and I had done some work on the place. We had called home for two years prior to buying a house. The ceilings and walls were painted. We intended to put new linoleum and counter tops in the kitchen. The young guy in front of me wanted a new dishwasher, stove, and new shelves in the refrigerator. I offered to have a skilled cleaner come in and make the appliances like new but the difficult guy in front of me would not be satiated. If the place is not to your expectations, why not look for something else, I asked. I like the area. I told him that things are a compromise and offered to put in a new dishwasher, clean the stove and refrigerator. But your idea of clean and mine may not be the same, I said, and I'm not going to accept less than the rent we have asked for. In an attempt to appease him, I walked over to the stove and opened it. That superficial grease that will come off easily. It's been there for years, he counted. Going home to where I do need a new stove, I thought of how I wasn't cut out to be a landlord. Our previous tenant of 18 years had moved out last November. Their son loaned the money and they bought across the courtyard. I told my husband we should have bought them a new carpet since that's all our prior tenants wanted. But you know what they say about 2020, and I have a feeling he wanted to sell it. There had been a steady stream of people viewing our condo since. I knew the spiel by heart. Two bedrooms, living and dining room, bath, kitchen, heat, hot water, and pool privileges parking for two cars included, storage cubby in the basement with washers and dryers. Our picture window overlooked a well-manicured courtyard. It was a pretty place. Those interested came with children and dogs, which were allowed. Some didn't show up as promised, others got lost. For some, the condo was too small. For others, the condo was too much of a transition from a house. I had tried for levity with today's jerk and said for the decrease in rent, he could give me a year of computer services. His potting shot was that I couldn't afford them. What a guy that, what a joy that guy will be to a future landlord. But as luck would have it, a couple who saw our condo earlier in the day decided to rent it. Without looking in the stove or refrigerator, they loved our place and moved in the first of the month. My husband and I cleaned the appliances until they gleamed. 
We did it because they didn't ask. Boy, that's the way it worked, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> Good job, Alan. Excellent. Face, Peter. So I'm going to do a little bit from something I worked on for quite a while, still working on. Uh, I keep what I'll call several long-term writing projects. This one is a book. Um, it is about a fictitious place in the same tradition as Utopia, small areas with big pride. Anyway, uh, the place is called Rising Run. And so um, the title of the work is called Down Rising Run. So this is going to be basically an excerpt from that book. I have returned to Rising Run many times. In travels around the country, it's never too difficult nor too distant a side trip to Rising Run. It's on the short side of an hour by car, give take, from Atlanta, Boston, Cleveland, Denver, Grand Rapids, Houston, Louisville, Minneapolis, Portland, both of them, or even Springfield, all of them. I have pictures. Getting here? We're not more than 20-odd miles give take from the last place you got lost, so just start from there. Rising Run is nestled, perhaps even ensconced, snugly, right at the junction of last hope and greater grace. <laughs> Small town pride can be as big as you like. Together, our proud little homespun hamlets huddle together tightly to comprise what we call, with a smile and a wink, the last hope, rising run, greater grace, triplex area. Or <laughs> say that together, L-H-R-R-G-G -G is pronounced large. <laughs> Some years back, we all chipped in to get our very own zip code in an effort to make an official place on the map. However, the post office people said that no, they could not be bribed. We explained patiently that we had no intentions of bribing anyone, and we expected a signed, stamped receipt. Besides, when was the last time anyone filled out an official form from the U.S. government that didn't require a filing fee? Well, <laughs> we had them there. Government costs money. That's why there's not all that much of it officially out here in our simple corner of an increasingly complex world. However, we get on fine enough. We who comprise the close-knit citizenry of the large triplex area, we are a living example that community happens through the will of the people, earnest, honest folk. We are close-knit as a matter of necessity. You can't have too many good friends, especially in a pinch. We are also close-knit by choice, no matter how many acres between the homes. That's real community. If you're situated north of us, do come on down. South of us, come on up. East or west, well, just come on by. Coffee's always hot, unless, of course, you want iced, no problem. Now and then, the occasional visitor might take a wrong turn at the rising run fork, end up stuck in last hope, <laughs> when they're actually in search of greater grace. We just tell them to work back to rising run, go left to turn right at the asphalt mound, you'll know it when you see it, then head straight on. If rising run is indeed rising underneath you, then you are definitely bound for greater grace. The large triplex area is noted on the federal USGS topographic survey map simply as unincorporated region. It trails off the southwest edge of the walking cloud 15-minute sectional, third shelf left wall at Wingham's general store, only one they stock, 
unincorporated region. Even though they capitalized it and all, the official designation just doesn't play well on a postcard or brochure. Does anyone send postcards to family and friends all about the plenty swell vacation or holiday they're having here in unincorporated region? We think not. <laughs> Visiting an unincorporated region suggests wish you were here with fresh supplies. <laughs> Better yet, please guide us out. Now, nothing could be further from the truth. We do like it plenty here, and the occasional visitors appear satisfied enough. To be clear, most folks here in the large triplex area aren't looking for throngs of tourists to trample the place, but the occasional visitor is always welcome, definitely appreciated for their favorable effects on the local economy. We happen to be blessed with an abundance of what people call bucolic splendor, which, as it turns out, is highly prized in small, convenient doses by most city folk. They're partial to convenience, but since we can't export it, we need to invite them to come on by. Hence, our postcards and brochure. Clip to a wire, hanging over the counter at Wingham's Just Pull. All right. Very good. Good job, Pete. Thanks for being with us here on Senior Story Hour. Until the next time... I'm Peter J. Remember, be they laced with gravity, levity, wisdom, or whimsy, the meaning, experiences of life become a little larger when you share them, when you take a moment to commit pen to paper and just write. This is FPR, Franklin Public Radio.